everyone, Ashley here. Before we get into this week's episode, we've got a couple of announcements for you. One is last week we released two things. We released our trailer that we'll be swapping on different podcasts, and we also released our ep- our weekly episode, so the episode on Waco and Black Dahlia. So if you only heard that trailer, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to the episode because it's a really good one, if I do say so myself. Secondly, for the next few weeks, we are helping out other podcasts, and they are helping us, and so we're swapping promos. This week, you'll hear a promo from A Little Bit Grim, a really interesting podcast that we highly encourage you to go check out. So thanks, and have a great week, guys. That is my best friend, Jenny, over there on that side of the table. Hi, that's my lifelong best friend, Taylor. Are you into ghosts, aliens, or murder? If you are, you are among friends because we love talking about terrible things, too. It's why we started our podcast, A Little Bit Grim, where we would talk about the paranormal, true crime, folklore, conspiracies, cults, disasters, and every other heinous thing that could happen to a person. It's a little bit spooky with a little bit of comedy mixed in. Honestly, it's all just a little bit grim. And you can find us wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. And you can find us on all social media platforms by searching for A Little Bit Grim. We'll see you there. Goodbye! Ashley and your other host is Jessica and on this week's episode Ashley is going to be talking about Richard Ramirez yeah and I'm going to be starting a three-part series sorry everybody (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's gonna be on the Romanov family so you know Anastasia yeah um I did a research paper for it in university so I'm basically just going to be reading you my paper. Hopefully it's good because I haven't looked at this in about seven, eight years. Dang. So (laughs) (laughs) hopefully it's okay. (laughs) Well, I'm super excited because I don't know much about the Roman. Like, it's fascinating. The whole story is fascinating. I know they all died. Um, But, like, other than what the cartoon movie Anastasia tells you, I don't know much about it. Yeah, and there's a lot of discrepancies between that movie and real life, so. I assumed, yeah. yeah. But <laughs> I love that movie. And um, Dimitri was like, oh my oh. God, I had the biggest mm. crush on him. And he's John Cusack. Oh, his voice was perfect. It was so perfect. And it was such a good movie. And it's on Disney Plus now, which yeah. I love. And I freaking love John Cusack in general. Like that man is, oh, I love him. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, that's a good movie. Yeah. Anyway, so let's first talk about a murderer. <laughs> and then we'll talk about a mass murder. Woohoo! Woo! <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> so, uh, like Jessica said, I'm doing Richard Ramirez, and we had mentioned him when she did her um, Eliza, Eliza Lamb. Yeah. Eliza Lamb story, because he stayed in that same hotel for a little bit. Um, and he's also represented it represents represents represented in american horror story in two of their seasons so he's in the hotel and he's also in this latest one the 1980 something or whatever so um the actor that plays him oh 
gorgeous hot, hot tamale yeah real richard ramirez not uh, hot tamale <laughs> he's got a beautiful bone structure yeah but it just doesn't translate well i don't think well probably just because we know who he is and what he's done true yeah and he's terrifying yeah <laughs> um so i got my information <laughs> yeah um so i got my information from biography.com uh murderpedia serialkillershop.com okay. uh wikipedia daily mail and true crime cases blog cool yeah so richard ramirez was born in el paso texas on february 28 1960 he was known to be a troubled kid. Uh, his father was apparently a violent man and would lash out on the family. He also apparently sustained two major head injuries as a child. Uh, one was when he was five. He was, uh, or I think one he got hit in the head, like a dresser fell on him. Oh. And then one was when he was five, he was hit in the um, head with a swing and like knocked out. Oh. And after that, he began having seizures. So there's definitely some like damage done. Yeah, that, rem- <laughs> that reminds me. <laughs> I um, I had a, I was dismantling a bed frame once, and I had the, it was like a solid wood bed frame, mm-hmm. and it landed on my shoulder. Ooh, and now I have tendonitis. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this is fun. <laughs> Yay! So, not as bad as a, a head injury, but like, still kind of. Yeah, it hurts. Oof. Yeah, it describes my clumsiness to a T. <laughs> yeah. So we've got Richard Ramirez, right? Young boy, already has two head injuries, gets beat by his dad, has seizures. Um, and then was influenced by his crazy older cousin, Miguel. Um, Miguel had recently returned from the Vietnam War. Uh, and him and Richard would smoke pot together. Again, this kid's like... 12. Um, so they would smoke pot as Miguel retold stories and showed pictures to Ramirez of the torture and mutilation he inflicted upon Vietnamese women. Lovely. And then at the age of 13, Ramirez witnessed Miguel uh, shoot his wife in the head. Oh, lovely. Yeah. So obviously Miguel went to jail. Um, lovely family. Yeah. Uh, so after this, he moved in with his sister, Ruth, and her husband. Her husband was a notorious peeping Tom who taught Ramirez how to watch people through their windows without getting caught. Lovely. Uh, yeah. It was also here that Ramirez started using acid and experimenting with Satanism. And how old was he? 13. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, so while in school... Uh, Ramirez got a job at a local Holiday Inn. Um, so, I mean, this was back in the what, 70s. So, like, I don't think they were really strict on child labor laws. Yeah. <laughs> um, but at the Holiday Inn, he would steal from his customers and he was caught trying to rape a woman in her room. Perfect. What a the husband. Man. Yes. The husband caught him and beat the shit out of him. Good. Um, and then charges were dropped because the couple lived out of state and didn't want to come back to testify against him. Oh, perfect. Mm-hmm. By ninth grade, Ramirez had dropped out of school and uh, was then arrested at the age of 17 for marijuana possession. 
Uh, after this arrest, uh, at the age of 22, Ramirez moved to California. And I'm not sure what he did between ninth grade and the age of 22 or what made him move out to California because I couldn't find it, but that's what he did. So <laughs> It's the, like, the groovy time, right? Yeah, yeah, like, it's true. California was, like, very lenient in things, so probably mm-hmm. with the appeal. Yeah, especially that he was doing drugs and stuff. Exactly. Because um, once he got out to California, he started delving heavily in cocaine and acid and stuff like that. Perfect. Um, so he didn't waste any time and got right into his first murder. Oh. <laughs> in 1984, so he was 24 years old at this time. Oh, shit. He murdered nine-year-old May Lung. Long? It's L-E-U-N-G. Okay, I don't like that. Yeah, she, this is, okay. Warning. <laughs> uh, his uh, murders were very awful and graphic and just heads up. Um, she was raped, stabbed, and then hung by a blouse. Oh. Um, she died by the hanging. Oh. But, um, yeah, they said she was found partially nude hung in a Christ-like position from a water spigot in the basement of her apartment building. Hate that. Nine. Yeah, that's horrible. Um, his next victim, and this is where it gets really crazy because, like, who was the murder that you did where he really had no type? He just kind of murdered everyone. Uh, Peter Curtin, the vampire of Dusseldorf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Richard Ramirez was the same way. So it took them a while to even put together that he was murdering all these people. Yeah. So his first murder was a nine-year-old little girl. His second murder was 79-year-old Jenny Vincow. Um, On June 28, 1984, he snuck in through her window, and when he realized she didn't have very many valuables, he became enraged and slit her throat so deeply he almost decapitated (gasps) decapitated her and then went on to sexually assault her body. crap. Yeah. Um, nine months later, on March 17th, 1985, Richard took his third victim's life. He shot 22-year-old Maria Hernandez in the face as she pulled into the garage of her home. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, like, the first one, he stabs and rapes. The second one, he slits the throat. The third one, he shoots in the face. That's weird. Yeah. Um, but before Maria was shot in the face... Um, she like held up her hands in, in like defense because she saw him coming and she had her keys in her hand. Yeah. And these keys saved her life. What? Yeah. Um, so she was unconscious uh, in the car. And while she was unconscious, Ramirez entered her house where her roommate, Day- I think it's Dale. She- it's a girl, but it's D-A-Y-L-E, Dale. That's, that's what I would assume. Yeah. Okazaki had hidden behind their counter. When she peeked out from her hiding spot, Ramirez shot her in the face, and she did not survive. Oh, poor girl. I know. Um, a few hours later, Ramirez forcefully removed Veronica Yu from her car and shot her in the face twice with a twenty-two caliber handgun. She also did not survive. Mm. A few days later, on March 27th, Ramirez struck again. He broke into the home of 64-year-old Vincent Zazara, 
where he shot and killed him and then brutally assaulted and stabbed his wife, Maxine, to death. This is really gross. Okay. He then gouged her eyes out and placed them in a jewelry box that he found of hers. Ew. A lot of the stab wounds, <sighs> stab wounds on her were post-mortem. Um, and here he left a shoe print in their flower bed outside. So this the um, detectives were able to get a print out of that. Okay. Um Less than two months later, on May 14, 1985, Ramirez tortured and assaulted Bill Doy and his wife. Bill died in the hospital, but Lillian survived. Um, at this point, due to bad hygiene and cocaine use, Ramirez's teeth were beginning to decay and fall out. Um, and so Lillian and a few other survivors were able to convey this to the police. So they were starting to get a bit of a profile to him. Good. I saw um, they, after his first attack... They had a sketch artist, or not his first, but, like, one of the survivors, you know, they had a sketch artist draw him, um, and there's, like, several different drawings of him from the different survivors. None of the drawings look like him. Hmm. Um, his, uh, uh, only 15 days later, Ramirez broke into the home of two sisters, 83-year-old Mabel Bell and 81-year-old Florence Nettie Long. He beat both women with a hammer and then used an electrical cord to shock and torture Mabel. Oh. He tied and raped up Nettie and then used Mabel's lipstick to draw a pentagram on Nettie's leg and on the walls. Mabel died, but Nettie survived. Oh. Uh, his next victim was 42-year-old Carol King. Her 11-year-old son was also in the home. He tied them up and searched the house but couldn't find anything of value, so he untied Carol and made her show him where anything of value was hidden. He then raped her multiple times, told her not to look at him or he would cut her eyes out, and then tied the two up and fled, leaving both of them alive. Okay. Why did he leave them alive? I don't know. Some people he left alive and some people he murdered. That's weird. Yeah. His next assault was unusual to say the least. He broke into a home where 16-year-old Whitney Bennett lived. He beat her with a tire iron and searched for a knife but couldn't find one, so he settled on strangling her with a telephone cord. While he was strangling her, the cord began to spark, and he took this as a sign from God, which scared him so much that he fled the scene. Okay. Whitney survived, but required more than 400 stitches from the tire iron beating. Next was 61-year-old Joyce Lucille Nelson. He beat her to death with literally just his fists and then kicked her in the head, um, leaving another sneaker imprint on her face. Oh. Yeah. That same day, he raped 63-year-old Sophie Dickman. That same day? That same day. Holy crap. Uh, Three days later, he got a machete, and he slashed 60-year-old Max and 66-year-old Leela Needing before shooting both of them in the head. Um, He then mutilated their bodies further with the machete. I was going to say, did you just say that he shot them? Yep. Okay, because I was confused why he would have the machete, but then he said, but then he used the machete to mutilate them afterwards. He slashed them first with the machete, then then shot them both in the head, and then mutilated them more with the machete. Super. Yeah. 
What a lovely gentleman. Yes. Um, That same day, he shot, I'm going to butcher this name, Chainarong Kvoananth. It's C-H-A-N-A-R-O-N-G-K-H-O-V-A-N-A-N-T-H. Okay. (laughs) Your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) Yeah, that's the rough name there. Um, Chainarong, maybe? Chainarong? Anyway, she was 32, and he shot her to death, then repeatedly... Oh, sorry, that was was the husband. Shot him to death, and then repeatedly raped his wife, (laughs) some kid. Sorry, I did not mean to laugh there. (laughs) I was laughing... And I, yes, <laughs> not not what was happening. <laughs> okay, um, he repeatedly raped um the wife, some kid. That was her name. He tied up the couple's eight-year-old son and then dragged some kid around to show him where the valuables were. Uh, he made her swear to Satan that she wasn't hiding anything. Okay. On August 6, 1985, he entered Chris and Virginia Peterson's home. He shot Virginia and then shot Chris multiple times as he was trying to fight him off. But both of them survived. Good. Yeah. Um, two days later, he broke into another house, shot the husband in his sleep, and then raped the wife, Sakina Abowith, 27. Uh, she said that he demanded she swear to Satan that she would not scream. During the rape, her three-year-old woke up. Thankfully, Ramirez just tied him up, but he continued to rape the mother and then fled the home. But both the son and Sakina survived. I don't like this whole swear to Satan thing. It's so yeah. Sketchy. Yeah. Um, so at this point, the media was in a frenzy, um, and they were revealing, like, everything, right? So yeah. Ramirez was closely watching the coverage and um, decided to flee back to San Francisco for a little bit. Once there, on August 18th, he shot. Um, on August 18th, he shot Peter Pan, 66, and then beat and raped Barbara Pan, 62, and then shot her in the head. Um, he then used her lipstick to draw a pentagram on the wall and write the phrase "Jack the Knife," which is from a song called "The Ripper" by Judas Priest. Okay. Barbara survived, um, and the media at this point mentioned that they had the shoe prints that matched the previous cases and those of the Pan residents. Um, But yeah, so since Ramirez was carefully watching the media, he saw that they had the shoe prints, so he got rid of those shoes. Okay. Um, He threw them over Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, you should have done this story when I was doing Alcatraz. Oh, yeah, because it was right there when I matched. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have in here written, great job, media. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, on August 24th, Ramirez went back to L.A. and arrived at the home of James Ramiro Jr. His son, James Ramiro III, just so happened to be awake and heard Ramirez outside. James went to wake his parents and Ramirez fled the scene. But the dad ran out and was able to get Ramirez's color, make, style of car, and a partial license plate number. Okay. Um, after the scare, Ramirez still needed to kill. Um, so he broke into Bill Carnes, 30 years old, and fiance Inez Erickson's, she was 29th house. He shot Bill in the head three times that, and then told Inez 
that he was the Night Stalker and made her swear she loved Satan as he beat her with his hands and tied her up with ties from the closet. Holy crap. He dragged her to an... I I didn't realize how much he did. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't either. Well, especially just because his name is the Night Stalker. Yeah. Like, you wouldn't anticipate it being so graphic and violent yeah with the name of just the night stalker yeah 100 percent. i didn't realize how much he did either like fucking night rampager gosh (laughs) for sure um he then dragged her into another room where he raped her and made her swear on satan that he had all the cash and valuables uh before he left he said to inez tell them the night stalker was here um both she and her husband survived, even after her husband was shot three times. Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, Inez was able to give a detailed description of Ramirez to the police. They also obtained a footprint from her house. And a few blocks away, they found the stolen car that he was driving that the the last house had described. And even though he had wiped down the car, he missed one. And they found one fingerprint. Ooh. Yeah. He didn't douse it in gasoline. He did not. He was not as smart as the Black Dahlia murderer. (laughs) Um, They were able to trace the fingerprint back to Ramirez because of his, you know, record. He was in the system. Um, And at the press conference, the police said, we know who you are now and soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide. But Ramirez fortunately didn't hear this coverage and was just like living his life. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He did at one point walk past two police officers and then saw his face on the front of a magazine. So they had like released his face and said, help us find the Night Stalker. Um, So after he saw it on the magazine with these two cops, like right by him, uh, he ran off in a panic and tried to. (laughs) This is amazing. This is fucking amazing. He tried to carjack a woman, but bystanders saw him. And shooed him away from her and then pursued him, realizing who he was. One of them struck him over the head with a metal bar. And then the crowd beat the shit out of him until the police arrived. <laughs> Love it. Good old citizen's arrest. Yeah. Um, his trial was kind of a shit show because he kept interrupting himself. He kept, like, blurting out stuff. Um, and at his first court appearance, he raised his hand where he had drawn a pentagram and he yelled, Hail Satan. Uh, interesting fact, there were not metal detectors to get into the court at this time. Like, you didn't have to go through a metal detector like you do nowadays. And there was a rumor that he had smuggled a gun into the jail and was planning on shooting the prosecutors. So that's when they decided to install metal detectors and searched everyone before they came in. Wow. Another day in court, one of the jurors did not make it. They found her shot to death in her apartment. Um, this scared the jury thinking that he could get to them from jail, but it was later discovered that she was actually shot by her boyfriend who then shot himself in a hotel. That's a weird coincidence. Yeah. Right. Um, ultimately Ramirez was convicted of 13 counts of murder, five attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults and 14 burglaries. He was sentenced to death in the gas chamber and his only comment after the conviction was, Big deal. Death was always with the ter- when always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. Disneyland. Huh. Yeah. Um, fun fact. 
The trial cost $1.8 million and was the most expensive in history until the O.J. Simpson murder case. Why? I don't know. That's weird. Um, fun, fun fact. A lady by the name of Doreen Loy, L-I-O-Y, began writing him letters in jail. He proposed and they were eventually married in 1996. Why? Claimed, so, like, why? I have no idea. She claimed that she would commit suicide when he was put to death, but left him in 2009 when DNA evidence confirmed that he raped and killed nine-year-old May. So, like... God, like, some sort of a compass. Yeah, but, like... (laughs) What? (laughs) Like, you're okay with all the other ones, but this one, that's your breaking point. (laughs) She probably didn't believe he did it. Um, He was then engaged to Christine Lee, a 23-year-old, when he died. Um, Thanks to karma, Ramirez died due to complications of B-cell lymphoma in 2013. He was 53. Um, Real quick, I have a quote from him um, with an interview he did with Inside Edition. And he said, Serial killers come about by circumstances like a recipe. Poverty, drugs, child abuse, these things contribute to a person's frustration and anger, and at some point in life, he explodes. When asked, why did you kill the people, this, if you ever can watch an interview with him, I highly suggest it. It's terrifying. It'd be, like, chilling, I think. It's so chilling, because he doesn't give a shit. No. Um, they said, you know, when asked, why did you kill those people, he smirks. Then he smiles and then, like, covers up his face, like, covers up his smile and says, no comment. I cannot answer at this time. Oh, lovely. And then he says, I believe in the evil in human nature. This is a wicked, wicked world. And in a wicked world, wicked people are born. I'm not going to blame society, my race, or people or anything. But it is up to people like myself to knock on whatever door they want to get into. As far as Satan is concerned, I believe in a malevolent being. I have I have felt powers that are evil. I don't care about myself, really. I don't care what happens to me. I never did, really. Lovely. And that is the story of Richard Ramirez. Wow. That was crazy. Yeah, I did not know how much damage he had done. Yeah, I had no idea he was that insane. Yeah. Holy smokes. All right. Well, then. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear about some Romanoffs. <laughs> All right. So, I'm going to be talking about the Romanovs. More specifically, my essay was on Nicholas II, who was the last Tsar of Russia, who was Anastasia's father. Okay. Um, I basically based my paper off of him. He was born in... Uh, I'll get into it, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So, I'm basically just gonna read my paper. Hopefully it's okay. Haven't looked at it in eight years, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if it sucks, I'll tell you. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Perfect. No, tell me. (laughs) So, this is the introduction. A person is made to believe that they have a purpose in life, a destiny of sorts. It's in your moments of decision that your destiny is shaped. For most, different choices are available to lead them along the path towards their future. Nicholas II, however, had no choice in becoming czar over all of Russia in 1894. 
He was Alexander III's eldest son. And as the eldest son, it was his duty to rule over Russia upon his father's death, obviously. Mm-hmm. Nicholas II lived from 1868 until 1918. And in that time, he went from having fun without a care in the world to being ruler over thousands of people during a very devastating time. At first glance, Nicholas II seems like a terrible ruler who destroyed his country. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) And brought on the demise of his whole family. But when you look deeper into it, um, you'll discover that he cared about his country and his family very deeply. So deeply, in fact, that he created a new government to please his people and stepped in front of his wife and son to protect them from a bullet. Wow. Nicholas II was a great man. It's just very difficult to see that among all the turmoil and suffering that went on while he was czar. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Czar? Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you are. T-S-A-R? Yeah. All right. So now um, it's the early days of Nicholas. So before someone looks at Nicholas II's life as czar over Russia... They must first look at his early life. When he had absolutely no care in the world, all he wished was to have fun. His adolescent life, however, was not a very happy time. His parents loved his brother Michael more than him. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. (laughs) I'm also kind of paraphrasing my essay so that people aren't like, this doesn't sound very professional university grade. Uh, wow jessica was a horrible student yeah (laughs) um through all of this like i mean that would be really shitty to grow up on yeah um so through this nicholas became very reserved but he did not become any less obedient or mean in any sense oh he's mean no he did not become mean oh so through all of this through his parents favoring his brother more than him he became very reserved Uh but he did not become any less obedient or mean okay nicholas did his service in the guards and had as much fun as he possibly could with his comrades in other words they all got blistering drunk (laughs) as often (laughs) as they could (laughs) that's the best way to have fun (laughs) of course of course (laughs) uh despite all the fun that he had nicholas also had a duty and as such he was taught the art of marching by a man by the name of volkov i guess i hope that's how you say his name (laughs) (laughs) volkov was on guard in march 13th 1881 and witnessed the assassination of Alexander II, Nicholas Gra- Nicholas's grandfather. Volkov then served as Nicholas's military instructor following the incident. Nicholas also wrote in a journal quite frequently. The journal provides the greatest insight into the young man's life, his feelings, his innermost thoughts, and who he fell in love with. The first mention of his future bride-to-be was in such a journal where he referred to her as Alex H. She was... Isn't that cute? Yeah. 
Um, she was a German princess, Ooh. and Nicholas's parents did not approve. Oh. So, after many failed attempts to being able to see her, Nicholas gave up hope and he moved on. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> Nicholas's father eventually passed away in 1894, and again, being the eldest son, Nicholas succeeded to the throne. Unfortunately, <laughs> to his dismay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Nicholas was being thrown into a really difficult time, unfortunately, and he had very little experience of government, so he was likely to fail. Oh, Yeah, poor guy. <laughs> that same year, Nicholas married Princess Alexandra of Hesse-Darmast. Oh, like Darmstadt. Darmstadt? Hess Darmstadt, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Close These, enough, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> Russian and German <laughs> stresses me out. In other words, Nicholas married his beloved Alex H. You remember her from the journal where he had to give up hope? He married her. Oh, I thought her name was something else so that's why i didn't immediately get that but i love that (laughs) he responded to her of alex h and her name is alexandra yeah okay hess darmstadt sorry so okay i thought you said alice so that's why okay i caught up i'm alex of h (laughs) so because now that his father is buried and can no longer tell him what he could and could not do he's like I'm going to marry the love of my life because life Aww. is too short. That's so sweet. <laughs> Foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so now I'm going to talk about the Russo-Japanese War. Oh, okay. Or Russo. I'm just going to call it Russo because that's my English. Got it. So the Russo-Japanese War came about in 1904. When Nicholas decided he would like to expand Russia into Manchuria. From a historical point of view, this would have been a really good opportunity for Russia if they had have been better prepared for war. Because with Manchuria, they could have had better opportunity for trade with other countries. Despite the fact that Russia had many more soldiers than Japan, they were still outnumbered in the sense that Japan was better prepared for this war. It was respectively Japan's best soldiers against Russia's worst. Oh, gosh. Oh, no. (laughs) So, in the end, to Japan's delight, Russia was not prepared for the war that they had started. Um, Russia's poor military performance badly affected the country, and Japan made the most of this by funding protester groups. The outcome was widespread demonstrations in the capital where protesters demanded an end to the war, amongst other things. Dude, that is so smart, though. Funding the protesters of your enemy. Yeah. That's so smart. (laughs) Isn't that insane? Yeah. It's crazy. Um, Yeah, so they are just protesting in the streets. It's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. So now, because Japan controlled the Yellow Sea... She was able to accomplish her primary plan for landing armies at Chemulpo 
in Sean? I don't have no fucking clue. Sounds <laughs> good to me. <laughs> and on the Lao Tong Peninsula. You're doing great, girl. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. <laughs> so this strategy made it possible for Japanese ground forces to come into contact with the Russian army where they threatened Russia's lines of communication and effectively surrendered the Korean peninsula without a fight. This was a significant error because Russia could have fought for like fought a delaying action across Korea, trading hundreds of miles for needed time by forcing the Japanese to land at Fusan or Pusan. Doing great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Russia could have accomplished this by forcefully using the Pacific fleet to attack or merely threaten Japan's slocks. (laughs) S-L-O-C. Which is her center of gravity. (laughs) This is horrible. (laughs) Okay. I... (laughs) I only read about these things. I never like listened to the words. Yeah, 100%. And it's also been eight years and I don't know what's happening. And it's another <laughs> language. So, exactly. <laughs> okay. However, Russia was unsuccessful in integrating sea and land supremacy and ultimately dissolved an opportunity to defeat Japan. So, like, they had all these opportunities where they could have totally dominated the Japanese army and they just fucking failed because they were not prepared. Like, it's just, oh, it's just so frustrating. Yeah. Um, This critical mistake permitted Japan to avoid Korea, immediately threatening Russia's center of gravity and ultimately dooming the Russian cause. So as a result of Russia's extreme defeat, many Russians began forming strikes and riots against their superiors. Then, in January 1905, the Imperial Guards in St. Petersburg shot at a crowd demanding radical reforms. This day is what historians and many others have come to know as Bloody Sunday. Ooh. And this revolution seriously damaged the Tsar's international standing and contributed to revolution in August of that year that lasted well into 1907. Ooh. So that's my first part. I am it's so short. I'm so sorry, everybody. Oh, okay. But like it's to me it's so fascinating. Yeah, well, and it makes sense, I'm sure, to break it up the way you did. Yeah. Like, it just, I mean, we're starting off with his early days. We're going mm-hmm. into the beginning of the revolutions. And so next week, I'm going to be talking about Bloody Sunday. I'm going to be talking about the Imperial Duma. Also about Alexandra and Rasputin. Ooh, I'm excited to hear about Rasputin. He yeah. falls apart in Anastasia. <laughs> and honestly, it's so fascinating because he is so he was so different in real life than how he was portrayed in the movies okay but does he have a bat best friend in real life no well yes but not the bat (laughs) i want the bat my dog looks like that bat she does 
Yes. <laughs> yes, No, I just, it is so, it's so fascinating. And, like, again, I'm sorry for it being so short, but, like, it's, sometimes I just need to get the facts out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, But I still find it really cool. And, like, it's yeah. just, like, stuff that, like, you just didn't know, right? And I don't know if I go into it later on, but apparently, like, I was reading um, an entry from his journal, like, how he Nicholas had his diary or whatever. Uh-huh. And it mentioned a train accident that he was involved in. Oh. So he was in a train crash. And it's just very fascinating. Like, I think he was injured pretty badly. Uh-huh. But it's just like fascinating the parallel between his in real life accident and then in the Anastasia movie, she was in a train accident. Oh yeah, right. So it was cool to have like that fun little parallel. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, sounds yeah. good. Well, stay tuned next week, guys, for part two of the Romanovs, and I will be covering the serial killer Ed Kemper, who is fascinating Ooh. and also super messed up so definitely content warning i am excited to hear about that one (laughs) (laughs) and if you want more of us lovely ladies you can find us on facebook or instagram at histories and mysteries or you can email us at histories and mysteries 515 at gmail.com or if you'd like you can rate and review us um because that really helps us grow as a podcast and help us get out there a little bit more so that'd be really We'd be really, really grateful if you guys could do that for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we would love it. Awesome. Well, we look forward to bringing you two new stories next week. Bye, guys.